0: Recorded at Get a Grip Studios in Toronto, Canada. A Get a Grip Management production and in association with the Get a Grip on Lighting podcast. Financially supported by the National Association of Innovative Lighting Distributors and presented by the National Lighting Bureau, the Illuminating Engineering Society, and the International Dark Sky Association. Added to the IES's 2021 Progress Report, this is Starving for Darkness, a podcast.
1: This episode of Starving for Darkness is brought to you by Evluma. If you're serious about contributing to the reduction of light pollution, go to Evluma.com, hover over Products, and click on Dark Sky Friendly Lighting. Both the Omnimax and AreaMax lights are International Dark Sky Association certified. The warmer color temperatures of the Omnimax reduce the more easily scattered blue wavelengths, which contribute to glare and sky glow. With AreaMax lights, you get full cutoff, which also means no uplight and a significantly reduced contribution to skyglow. And all of Evluma's outdoor lighting product lines come with dimmable drivers for even more control. If your customer is looking for dark-sky friendly fixtures with energy savings while still meeting the demands of decorative lighting, look no further than Evluma. Evluma, illuminating the pursuit of dark skies. Welcome back, folks, to the Starving for Darkness
0: podcast. You're here with Starlight Sanchez, and I have regrettable news for all of you. Jane Slade has left Starving for Darkness and is moving on to bigger and better fa- things. And I know from the board of directors of the National Association of Innovative Lighting Distributors, who sponsored and was the patron of this podcast, we wish her nothing but the best in her future pursuits. But we have to fill you in on one more detail. Starving for Darkness is Jane Slade. And so moving forward, this show is going to be changing its name. We're still going to be on all the great networks and on social media and on the Get a Grip on Lighting podcast website network and all that. But we're going to have a new name. And Starlight Sanchez is going to host in the interim. That's right, just me with the guests. We're going to be talking about darkness restoration, dark skies, darkness preservation, how to get there and all that sort of stuff. But we haven't named it yet. On today's show, we have Abdul... Dramali, he is a Palestinian Egyptian artist with a passion for the night sky. Currently based in Reno, Nevada, yeah, he travels the world in search of dark skies and takes documentary style takes a documentary style approach to his time on the road, shooting mostly thirty five millimeter film during the road trips and digital for his astro photog- uh, photography. Uh, he's got a website. A-B-D-U-L-D dot com. That's A-B-D-U-L-D dot com. And all of his social media is at Advil. A-D-V-I-L. What's going on, Abdul? Ha <laughs> Hey, not a whole lot. How are we doing today? Well, you know, uh, star, uh, starlight is always, always hot, buddy. I'm doing great. And what I want to know is, were you born... In Palestine or Egypt, or, or were your parents from there? Where were you born? Just to open that up with that.
2: I was born in Palestine, in Gaza.
0: In Gaza. Um, so yeah.
2: I. Uh, yeah, carry on. Yeah, so uh, I I uh, was born in Gaza, and then we left. We fled the uh, first uprising in mm-hmm. uh, the late 1980s, early 90s to Egypt, and then we were exiled to to Florida. So I've lived in the United States for most of my life. So I, I speak Arabic first, but my English is pretty good.
0: Do you remember Gaza much? Do you remember it?
2: Yeah. Yeah, we went back all the time as kids. Um, We would go every summer. As soon as school was out, we would spend the entire summer in both Egypt, in Cairo, and in Gaza. So we would go back and forth a couple times through the summer. It's a six-hour drive from Cairo to Gaza.
0: I'm curious as to the state of Gaza's darkness, as related to darkness, is it is it underdeveloped? Is it overdeveloped? Is there is there not a lot of electric light? Uh, you know, how, what's the state of the situation there?
2: Uh, it's funny you should ask, actually. I am very actively reaching out to try to get a humanitarian aid uh, credential so that I can go back and see my family. I haven't been able to go back in 16 years because of the blockade mm-hmm. on Gaza. And I want to do a photo project there specifically because of... <laughs> the the situation so um, if you don't know Gaza the Gaza Strip specifically is a coastal enclave on the uh, Mediterranean coast in Palestine and it's under a land air and sea blockade by both Israeli and Egyptian military so nothing goes in nothing goes out without uh, the Israeli military approving it basically As a result of the last few, there's been four wars on Gaza since the blockade started. There's no infrastructure. So electricity is a, uh, that is a huge privilege to have any electricity. You only get electricity for about four hours a day. And if you have money, like if your family has money, they're able to get a generator and then maybe you can get a few more hours that way. So I want to go and shoot there because um, despite not being able to have you know any resources or infrastructure they still have the stars and i would love to really get to know uh, their relationship with that and uh, really spread astronomy as a as a means of just coping and uh, as a means of hope for my people and you
0: know Politics aside, and I know people um, often are not as in, maybe as informed as they should be on what happens in the Middle East and take sides otherwise, but my heart goes out to the Palestinian people. You know that? I mean, Thank whenever you. I think about their their plight, that, that Gaza Strip, especially in the Gaza Strip, it's such a um, humanitarian disaster, actually, for so long. And, um, you know, my heart really goes out to them. Let's move to how... Is it that you became passionate about the night sky? What was there? Was a particular incident in your life? Was there a time when, you know, it just came to you that you um, loved the stars, or how did it all start?
2: Well, I moved around a lot as a kid, and I love being outside, especially at night. I've always been a night owl, and I noticed at a very young age that the stars, no matter where I moved to, were the same, and that I could count on the stars. You know, I could count on Cassiopeia being up there, especially like I was, I always had a good relationship with Cassiopeia <laughs> and, um, that always just brought me comfort, you know, going from, uh, Palestine to Egypt, to Florida, we moved to Iowa after the Iraq war started, we had to leave Florida, we got like chased out of town. Uh, and then Texas. So I guess I, I hadn't really discovered the fact that the Southern Hemisphere exists and the stars were different down there. But they had always brought me solace in that. They were always there. I could always count on them uh, when I needed them the most. So my relationship with the night sky started at a very young age. Um, I'll never forget seeing my first lunar eclipse and just being like, wow, holy shit. That, that's really happening right in front of me, huh? That is the mm-hmm. shadow of our planet just on our nearest Mm -hmm. satellite like what and um i remember getting my my friends in our little trailer park in fort lauderdale at the time and we would observe the moon we would have a little moon club is what we called it and we would uh every night go outside and just observe the moon together it didn't last that long but it lasted for me for the rest of my life yeah
0: starlight sanchez
2: loves lunar eclipses um
0: but you know you know what's interesting about the moon has a cycle that is more obvious to us than the sun so the sun moves you know in the you know in the north it goes up to the you know the middle of the sky and then back down a little bit from sun but the moon really has a progression that you can follow you can follow the moon and you can be aware of where it is and i don't think people i'm not saying that everyone should go do this abdul but i think some people should consider that that there's a rhythm to that and it's a monthly rhythm and following it is not ridiculous actually it's something that should be considered how do you feel about that
2: oh that's my work schedule i people <laughs> tell me all the time because i travel when it's a new moon because a new moon means darker skies which means i can get my my astrophotography done and i tell people that's my work schedule and knowing where you are on this celestial level which i mean you only know where you are to a certain extent of course but having that that idea of like, oh, we're here right now, is mm-hmm. special. And there's some sort of special. Uh, there's something special with knowing that and having an idea of like, I can find the moon in the sky uh, at any given time, assuming it's there. You know, I just know. Mm-hmm. I know what phase it is. I know where she is. I know where to expect her what rising, setting, and just having that awareness, that spatial awareness, uh, I think is is special, and it really it makes you feel small, but in a good way. It makes you feel small but also part of the bigger picture in a way and i feel that that's just a uh, it's a critical part of just you know putting things into perspective
0: the you know it's interesting moon rises are very fascinating because the moon is often biggest when it comes up over the horizon i don't know if you've noticed this Mm -hmm. it's it's the biggest when it comes to me what i've seen in my life is that it looks larger it looks like it takes up a wider part of the sky when it comes over the horizon and, you know, I think moon rises are as spectacular as sunsets or sunrises. I just don't, I don't think people, enough people know about them. And the other good thing about the moon is that it's not as sensitive to the light pollution as stars are. It seems like you can always see the moon. Would you agree with that?
2: Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you can be in... Manhattan look up and see the moon and maybe Venus I have a photograph of Venus over the skyline it's all you could get but it is also mm. the brightest thing other than the the sun and the moon but uh, that's just you know it goes back to what inspired this passion to begin with is that you can mm. count on certain stars you can count on the sun and moon being there because um, if they're not <laughs> we got some problems that are beyond, <laughs> beyond have you anything ever personal to the
0: moon have you ever talked to the moon
2: Oh all the time. I wave at Andromeda every time I see her. It's a whole ass yeah. galaxy like there might be someone over there. I don't know. So I just wave and yeah. say, "Hey, it's me." Hey, the stars cool? that we know each other. Those are my friends. So the moon, the the sun, and many constellations, individual stars. That's why like I I tell people it's good to know, you know, the the astronomical part of the science of what you're looking at. I don't like crap on astrology. I don't really care if people believe in it. But what I prefer is for you to build your own relationship with the night sky mm-hmm. because like why why listen to what someone else's relationship was when you can go do it yourself because it requires nothing you just go outside at night. Mm-hmm. Um, you know unless you're in the middle of Manhattan where well, you might have some troubles with that but you load up a dark sky map and then you have an excuse to go on a road trip.
0: Yeah, I can't blame you for that. You know, I I totally I think the our relationship to the stars has been Uh, chipped away at for decades. And I would say that most of our ancestors would have had a very intimate relationship with the night sky. And, you know, now I would say that most of our, you know, people that we know don't. You know, it's it's completely in inverted. Um, you know, when you think about dark skies and darkness, there's almost fear associated with it. It's like, you know, we don't wanna we're afraid of it rather than the element of sublimity and, and sublimity and um you know a a spirituality that i think uh, is lacking and i think it's because we don't have a relationship with darkness and the stars and the sun and the moon and how do you do you try to capture that in your photography
2: absolutely and being able to capture what darkness looks like without You know, I use long exposure photography, so I'm collecting photons for 10, 13, sometimes 15 or 20 seconds at a time. So naturally, it's going to be a little bit brighter than what the human eye can see. But there's definitely a balance of what I like to strike with the foreground and the starry night sky of not brightening that foreground up in post-production too much so that you could see every detail because that's not how it is Mm -hmm. uh, at night. And my work is very deliberate in that I try to place the viewer under a majestic night sky. So um, yeah, the foreground element might be a little dark or, uh, you know, indiscernible, but you're looking up at this majesty and there's the majesty of the earth uh, contrasting it that's close to it. And uh, yeah, it's really important for me to try to capture it as realistically as possible while still having an artistic element to it. You know, I'm, I'm very, I get a little liberal with my colors and uh, some of the brightness of the stars. You know, I try to get as much detail in the night sky as possible. So it'll be a little bit more than what you can naturally see, uh, but that's why we have cameras and not just our crappy eyeballs.
0: So, assuming that you're a darkness advocate or a dark sky advocate, um, what do you, what do you think the challenge is? Like, why is it like light pollution's getting worse? It's not getting better. It's there's they, there are you know, positives, there are different, you know, the IDA is doing great work and helping to certify different parks and all that sort of stuff. But where the average person lives in the world, light pollution is a, is a problem that's growing. Um, what can we say or how can we, you know, is it art that's the answer? What, what do you think it is that to make people aware of this?
2: I think art is not necessarily the answer as much as the eye candy that can present the answer to a willing audience i think that the primary driver of change in the dark sky conservation effort is going to be the education that the solution to uh, light pollution is actually quite simple and that it's a win-win-win for everyone involved and when i say simple uh, it's things like light maintenance has to occur at some point those lights are going to burn out they need to be clean they need to be maintained in some way Mm -hmm. so why not just add to that schedule of maintenance adding a shroud adding a lower uh, power bulb something like that I think that just showing people that it doesn't have to be this overnight massive revolution of protecting the night sky but this gradual increase of uh, you know little by little changes I think that that could be a, uh, a big driver. And then secondary is the economic impacts. Uh, you're not going to push legislation through unless there's a valid economic reason to do so. We know that politics are driven primarily by money, not by, you know, the constituents' well-being, not for anyone else's well-being. <laughs> so by by pushing the money button of saying like, hey, think of how much mo- more money you'll be able to save and, you know, invest for insider trading. <laughs> that alone could be uh, a driver. <laughs> oh, I don't like politicians.
0: <laughs> you know, I, I mean, uh, I don't like the personality type. How's that of a politician? They, they you know, not to I'm go down this that. road quickly, but I agree with you on that. I think there's, um, like, I don't want to be a politician. I have no desire to be a politician whatsoever. And, you know, I've been asked to run by multiple parties in my life. Starlight Sanchez should be a a politician, but (laughs) you know, he's been asked to run many times, but, um, but you know, I, I just, there's something about that, you know, that's very, there's something about it where you, in order to get there, you become, um, you belong to other people. That's what happens to you. You have to give up your decision making to the greater special interest group, or I just don't like the way they think. I don't like the way they behave. And I don't like the way they make decisions.
2: And I'm with you, but we got to play that game if we want to make a difference on a legislative front. So I, I say that for them, you push the economic benefits of protecting the night sky, just the massive savings of, of energy cost. I think that that's know, the button you push with them.
0: So I'm in the lighting industry, and this podcast is is um, uh, you know is a uh, production of the National Association of Innovative Lighting Distributors. So we're lighting people. You know, we're trying to get the industry on board first. So before awareness, um, what we've created is the six steps uh, or the six strategies for darkness restoration and preservation. And the first one is industry alignment. Most lighting people, Abdul, are not interested in dark skies, darkness restoration or preservation at all. It's very difficult to have that conversation. It's getting easier slightly. But I think the most important people to get on board would be lighting people, people that sell light fixtures, you know. And then um, we then we create awareness. The second step would be awareness creation and and bringing advocacy forward. Um, so we're working to get the lighting industry on board. And the re- one of the things, Abdul, that I think you you know that that is interesting to step back from from the money perspective, is that any of you lighting people out there that are listening to this. I'm not talking about less money. I'm talking about the greatest lighting boom in the history of lighting booms. Like, th- that means everyone- oh, So, on can... the other end, right? Yeah.
2: Yeah, like... right. It's, a jo- it's job creation, right? <laughs> yeah. Like you're you're adding... talking about every outdoor
0: partner. light fixture. Like, what are you, what are you waiting for? Um, and uh, dark sky or darkness-friendly um, systems require more light fixtures. That's how it works because you focus more of the light below the light fixture so you actually need less light over less energy but more fixtures overall in order to make so it's just like a it's like a waiting boom abdul and it frustrates me so I it's believe, a win-win it
2: win-win Because oh. i said it was a win-win-win so i said people government and then animals or whatever <laughs> yeah. so yeah i mean that's that's the type of education that i think is just so critical is there are no downsides. I can't think of a single downside. There are things that people will say like, "Oh, what about safety?" And I'm just like, you know, that your eyes adjust, right? A lot of people don't even know that their eyes can adjust the darkness because they just have the brightest flashlights on, the brightest, uh, you know, porch light. The it just they always go for the brightest bulbs. We were just on a walk last night, me and my wife, and we were noticing how dark the neighborhood was. We were mm. happy about it, but then there was the occasional house that went out of their way to have just a, you know. 500 watt light like floodlight just sure. pouring into the streets like they probably feel like that's safer is probably if you ask them what they think it is so we just got i think they they f-
0: i think that the the instinct towards glare and safety is a perspective one okay so if 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 a cop comes to your car at night they shine a flashlight in your eyes they you can't see them but they can see you perfectly right so the instinct toward glare is like the reverse um prison yard where, you know, everyone can, this idea that you can, you can see everyone coming towards your house, and that provides safety to you. A lot of this is myth, you know, or a lot of it is assumption. Now, there is correlations between light levels and safety, but those are very crudely measured. If we added more light and then looked for more safety, can we find it? Um, there's, you know what I'm saying? Like it, when you start off looking for something and you, th- you think you're going to find it for sure, generally you can find it in any kind of statistics. Right. So if you say, oh, we increased the light by, th- uh, you know, 100 percent, we had 30 percent drop in crime. You know, I don't know if that's I, I don't know how they saw that. So we need to de- I think you're right. We need to decouple safety and electric light from one another. And then we're not talking about the elimination of light, but we're talking about the shielding, the color temperature, and the control of those light sources. Um, And that's where, you know, that person that's, you know, they call that a light trespass, where a light goes beyond someone's property and spills further beyond that, and now it's glare to you or unpleasant to you or on someone else's property. We call that a light trespass. And I think, you know, our societies... um, are light trespassing
2: on the universe. <laughs> How you like that? Maybe not the universe. <laughs> it's it's getting bad. I, we watch, I mean, we just watch those, uh, like the Apple TV wallpapers and they have a lot of space station flyovers of the planet. Mm-hmm. And as soon as they're going over any cities, I'm just like, oh my God, switch this. This is torture for me. This is supposed sure. to be soothing, but this is torture. I hate it. It's. I mean, you could see it clear as day, literally clear as day. It's When you very see those Apple ones, is the light gold or white? oftentimes it's i see like a mix of incandescent and white um depending on which part of the world they're flying over but i see a lot more incandescent i think in yeah the um, reason like why Africa is that, and stuff.
0: yeah the no but the the reason why is that i, do, I don't believe most of our satellites even capture anything above 4000k so the truly oh, white lights are not being, because ca- what the, the, the satellite isn't actually seeing the color, it's it's numbering it or something, you know what I'm saying? It's saying this is the right. image, and then we backfill it in with color, but it can't see 5,000 Kelvin light, which is the vast majority of new LED streetlights. So the light pollution problem is actually far worse than it's, it is seen from satellite imagery. So whatever you're well, seeing on that, it's actually worse. way worse, yeah, it's actually way <laughs> worse than that. Unfortunately. But this is what I don't get, Abdul. And this is when I'm talking to someone like you, where, you know, like this is a win, 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 win. And it's actually a solvable environmental issue. You know what I mean? Like this is a solvable That's issue. what I always
2: say. I tell people that all the time. It's like so many environmental issues seem so, like, what the hell am I going to do about it? Mm-hmm. But we can make a difference. Like we really can. Mm-hmm. Like global warming sometimes. or climate change is intractable. It's a difficult problem to solve.
0: Very, very difficult. There's a lot of you know, and a lot of the frustration with it comes from the fact that, you know, there nobody really has a solution. The Why not change focus then to a problem we can solve environmentalists? And we can, we actually have the technology, we have the resources, and we have the ability to solve this problem within 10 years and completely eliminate light pollution from from almost everywhere, except prison yards where you need it. But other areas we can completely eliminate it Abdul and it's it's unfortunate let's move into I'm looking at your website here the Cape Cod Milky Way picture with the I think that's a lighthouse yeah when you're taking photographs like that and is there any is that the actual or is that a close version of what the sky looked like from that angle or have you filled in colors or have you done anything back in the lab to change it how does that image come about like that
2: so the way my uh, photography works is I never add anything that's artificial to the photograph. Uh, however, I do use long exposure photography in order to capture mm-hmm. as much starlight as I can. So uh, I think that image, I would guess, was about 15 seconds uh, exposures. So what I do then is I take about 20, 25, 30 of the exact same image, and then I stack mm-hmm. them on top of each other in order to remove noise. So I. What I do is I average out the spaces in between the stars and uh, I apply what's called a mean or median filter so that it averages out the noise pattern of the of my sensor, my camera sensor, and that makes them much sharper and more detailed for printing. Uh, as a result of that as well, you get more detail in the night sky that our eyes are incapable of making out. Things, for example, like the Lagoon Nebula uh, in a Milky Way photograph, you could see the Lagoon Nebula as this small patch of pink nebulosity. That's hydrogen alpha nebulosity in uh, Sagittarius area. Hmm. You can't see that with your eyes. Your eyes are a lot more monochromatic when they start working in very extreme dark uh, situations. So the color is definitely more of a digital effect, of, uh, but it's all natural so none of it is artificial color it's all natural it's just that our eyes are incapable of making out that much detail because they're not very good
0: and we can you know the uh, it's the, what you're trying to do here this that, that I think that's where the art side of it comes into it from my perspective where you're bringing forth the rendition or something um, is it done on a computer? Do you do it in an old-fashioned way? I know you said that you do use a thirty-five millimeter camera, but that would be for filming video, correct? Or is that for?
2: Taking no, I shoot pictures? thirty-five millimeter for my daytime photography. So I make like these little photo journals uh, for my for my Patreon supporters, and um, the photographs I take during the day on my on my trips are uh, often thirty-five millimeter film. So I have done a lot of film astrophotography. It's just not. Really cut out for it. I mean, that's why we have digital cameras. So I switch mm. to digital as soon as the sun goes down. Basically,
0: interesting. What are the advantages of the thirty-five millimeter during the day? Why are you? Why are you still stuck in the past? Why? Why not switch to digital for the daytime?
2: <laughs> it's mostly an aesthetic choice, and I just really like shooting with a rangefinder. I, I carry my. Uh, Leica range finder everywhere I go. I got it when I got engaged because I was jealous that my fiance got a cool ring and I wanted a forever camera. So I got a camera that doesn't need batteries. <laughs> it just always works and I take it everywhere and um, I just love shooting. I love shooting film both as an aesthetic choice and I like the workflow of film a lot because then I'm not stuck looking at my pictures or editing them while I'm traveling. It's just you take the picture and then it's you don't know until you get home
0: that's one of the great surprises we've lost in life oh
2: remember yeah When
0: you used to come oh, yeah. home and you get your pictures developed and you have to wait a week and then you go pick them up and then you're like oh yeah oh yeah that was
2: that's one of the great I, things I still lost. remember I still do it I have roles right here that I need to get sent in for development so uh, I develop always have your own ever do you have your own lab I develop to... I do black and white at home I don't do color because color correction is just kind of annoying My color correction for film is is to do as many roles as I shoot would take too long. I'm not doing that. But I like doing black and white. I shoot a ton of black and white film, uh, just personal projects that I never share. I just will do them of my family, of Mm. my cat, my wife, whatever. And then I just have those for myself. So I like Mm. doing that workflow. And it's cool because then you can print them. I have a print shop like in my office here. So then you own the process entirely. You know, it's like beginning to end, you create that photograph and that's really cool.
0: And do you, when you're, when you are inspired by the dark skies with, you know, when you're out there and you're looking at things, are you looking for specific constellations? Like I see Andromeda galaxies on a couple of times on the website, are you looking at the looking for the same signals or is there something different out there that you capture each time?
2: I definitely have patterns of what I like to capture. Um, Cassiopeia and Andromeda are some of my favorite targets. Uh, I love taking just portraits of Cassiopeia all the time. Orion as well in, in the winter sky. So those are going to be opposite each other depending on which side is darker you get. Uh, you know, it's just that angle on them. Mm-hmm. So right now, Orion, it's, uh, you know, midwinter. So really standing tall and proud in the, in the southern sky. So that's always a good target. It's I've had a lot of Orion time this winter. <laughs> but yeah, I, I typically tend to go to my spots that I'm comfortable with and that I love to photograph. Do you mind
0: me if I ask you which spots those are?
2: Like physical locations? Yeah, I, I no, meant like physical oh, spots, like spots in the oh, sky. I thought you meant like you yeah. No, I go to this
0: spot it, in uh, you know, in Massachusetts or whatever and you're going to try to hide it from... Oh, no, like I'm the opposite.
2: I never yeah. go to the same place twice. I'm, okay. I'm very... I need like intense amounts of stimulation. I'm very, very ADHD. So I get bored very, very quickly. And I don't like going back to the same locations. I have a whole planet to explore. Like, what, what the hell? What are you going to do going back? I don't have time for that.
0: <laughs> That's funny. The spooky ghosts near Reholite. Where's
2: that? That's actually spectacular, that one. Holy Rhyolite, Nevada. Okay. That is a abandoned gold mine just outside of Death Valley. It's near Beatty, Nevada, is the nearest town. And the uh, Spooky Ghosts installation. There are a number of art installations in that area now that it's abandoned. And uh, there's a. They're, they almost look like paper mache or something, but they they are more substantial than that. Sure. I'm and they at them look right now like. For the
0: listeners, it's, I'm looking at. It's like a it looks like a combination between marble like a really well done marble or like a something clay it's really yeah yeah
2: set on the back of the milky
0: way i guess it would be eh?
2: yeah that was um gosh 2018 on my first trip to death valley that was a very special trip because that was the first time that i had planned my compositions and set out to go create images that I had already made in my head, if that makes sense. Um, like I had planned out these compositions and I had booked a plane ticket and said, these are the pictures I'm going to go create. And that was one of them. And then it was Andromeda over Death Valley where I wanted just the speck of the Andromeda galaxy uh, over a sand dune in Death Valley. So those are two that I'm very proud of.
0: It looks like the Nazgul or something from Lord of the Rings, except they're white. Yes. Yes. You know, yeah, the they, they do look spooky... like the Nazgul.
2: Yeah, I love it. a, I love a good Tolkien reference. Yeah,
0: it's it's spectacular with the and 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 the the just the way it, it looks like they're being sent down from above or something. I don't know what it is. A very spectacular picture actually on your website there at abdul.com really yeah check it out this stuff is pretty or
2: cool or abdul.cool that's my favorite uh, url i have abdul.photography that one's kind of boring but abdul.cool Abdul. is my favorite
0: <laughs> okay abdul.cool so that'd be abdul.cool <laughs> okay so yeah. you know it's you know it's hard to advocate from the stargazer perspective on this though because you know that this is an angle that we take do you have any final thoughts or some thoughts on what, what the, the person in the lighting business or something that they could, that they can put in their repertoire when they're out trying to sell dark skylight fixtures or trying to talk someone into darkness restoration or preservation project or bringing in lighting controls like to, to dim light string wildlife migrations or scargazing events or whatever? What would you say to them? Say, hey guys, help me out with this. What, what do you got for them?
2: I think that the the issue of how it affects both animal and human ecosystem Uh, You know, we have proof that it affects human health, we have proof of countless animal ecosystems that have not only been displaced, but some that are maybe permanently displaced and just unable to come back because we've uh, damaged their nighttime hunting operation too much. Uh, Highlighting the effects on just everything around us, including people, and then the cost savings slash cost making ability of uh, some sort of reform, I think that that's going to be the primary uh, driver. Things like partnerships, I think that every organization uh, of this sort needs to have a partnerships manager that is focusing on like, you know, Audubon, uh, Mm -hmm. the bat conservation people in Austin, Mm -hmm. like these types of large animal organizations, the turtle organization. I don't know any of the names. I just know that they exist in Florida Um, and things of that nature. And just really work on building partnerships and alliances so that. You know, if there's a lighting company in Florida, for example, have them be the sea turtle advocates and just say, hey, we design our lighting to protect our indigenous nature around us. That type of messaging really resonates with the buyer. I work in marketing. like I do a lot of marketing consulting. So this is something that I'm very uh, specialty at. And I think that alliances and partnerships are going to be uh, a very critical component to success in this world
0: you know i was talking earlier about the six strategies for the lighting industry for darkness restoration and preservation and the you know we're just starting uh, from the nailed perspective with industry alignment like and what that means is for us initially is let's just acknowledge that we're participating in this issue and we need to stop we need to stop first you know and start acknowledging that you know darkness pres- preservation and restoration is important um I think that you know while you were saying that all the different kinds of organizations it's almost like the IDA has to come up with some environmental group awareness um alignment among that that you know that advocates simply for darkness for all reasons whatever those reasons are like you know when when it comes to the astronomers and the photographers they're talking for uh, ecotourism for astrophotography for stargazing and these kinds of things but then there's no reason why those people can't be aligned with, you know, the Gumbo Limbo Nature Center in Florida or, exactly, you know, exactly. you know what I'm saying and why they can't speak with one voice through the IDA. And I would really like to see the final thing on that is I would like environmentalists to publicly acknowledge that darkness, restoration and preservation is an environmental issue, that it's not well, absolutely and calling metaphor. it by its
2: name. Yes. And calling it light pollution and being very specific that this is an issue that we're all dealing with. And I tell people, like, what if what if it was the equivalent of sound? Like, what if just buildings were just had speakers on the outside that were blasting sound all the time? Like, that would mm-hmm. be very annoying for you. That's similarly anno- annoying to other animal ecosystems. Just because it doesn't affect you the same way doesn't mean it's not important. Well,
0: I think, you know, like a lot of humans, you know, they forget that animals don't have shades. And I, I know that you know generally when you get into the space the average par- the birds can fly over there you know they don't really care that much and i understand that you know i'm not i'm i'm sympathetic to to that as well but i think that's why the the environmental movement needs to get behind this and the reason why i say that is because the issue is solvable it's not intractable it's a solvable issue and it can give momentum to other it can provide a victory, an environmental movement victory can provide momentum into other areas. And it. the other thing about it, too, and I'll get your thoughts on this. Like, I, I don't care. what I, We both don't like politicians. So, um, but I think that they're, they're really, they're, neither side has staked the claim over darkness restoration or preservation yet. It hasn't become political, you know, and the hunters and anglers can get together with the stargazers and the environmentalists
2: and have a big party over this one, Abdul. You know what I mean? Everyone can win. <laughs> that's, that's the frustrating thing. We just need to build that bridge. I just don't know where that bridge starts. I know where it ends. I just don't know where it starts. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, uh, folks, you know, Abdul, it's been a pleasure talking to you and... Um, you know, I just want to thank Jane Slade at this point, and I know Scott, the producer, and everybody at the National Association of Innovative Lighting Distributors really appreciated your contribution, and the Starving for Darkness podcast name is going to be returned to you, and we need a new name, and if you have a suggestion for that, folks, you can go ahead and email info at nail.org, that's info at n a i l d . o r g or... Get a podcast at gmail.com or go to the website and look for us and contact us and let us know what you think it should be called. But we do want to honor Jane's contribution and thank you so much. This has been Starlight Sanche signing off for the last
2: or the second last Starving for Darkness podcast. Yeah. Bye for now. Say bye, Abdul. <laughs> bye, guys. Thank you so much for listening to me, Chad. And you can check out my stuff at abdul.cool. abdul.cool. Bye for now.
1: Look no further for dark-sky friendly products than Evluma. Since its first product launch, Evluma has carried one or more International Dark Sky Association certified models. If your customer cares about light pollution, suggest the Omnimax with shielding or the AreaMax with full cutoff to reduce uplight and glare. Evluma, illuminating the pursuit of darkness.